episode 177 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by the Finer Points. You can get a free 3-day trial of the Ground School app by visiting learnthefinerpoints.com. Uh, my name is Mike Graham. Uh, I'm an NTSB board member and a aviator. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. Today's podcast is with the NTSB. We are speaking with member Graham, who is a board member for the NTSB. And we go through his whole story of why he became a pilot and to how he got the NTSB. If you've ever thought, how does someone get on that board? I've always thought that my whole life. How does someone get on a board of a company, the government, NTSB, whatever it is? Well, here is how you find out how you can model your career to be just like member Graham. We also go through what he did and flying and how he chose the route that he chose and why he actually wanted to be on the NTSB. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can also follow us on Instagram at pilot to pilot. And don't forget to check out pilots coffee, the best travel coffee in all of travel, not just aviation, but travel in general. It is so good, but you can find that at pilots coffee or pilotscoffee.com. Aviation, I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So any further ado, Here's member Graham of the NTSB. Mike Graham, what is going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Justin, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here, and I look really look forward to our discussion today. Yeah, me too. I'm, I was I was really excited to have Michael reach out to me and have the opportunity to talk to you. Ever since I started the podcast, I always wanted to interview someone from the NTSB. I took some classes in college that was run by a guy named Sean Puchnicki, and he did some NTSB stuff, I think, with uh, his company I was at. I think it was Comair. And I was always very intrigued by kind of how the, what the process is, how it works, and kind of what it's like from the start of a duty day. To like you find out there's an accident to the end point, which we can get into later. But to start out with, I want to know more about you, know more about your story, kind of the, the overall why of why you became an aviator and what initially piqued your interest to in becoming a pilot. You bet. Um, I, I love talking about this because uh, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, I literally lived about three miles from the airport. And I remember watching the planes fly over my house at, uh, I couldn't tell you what age, I was I was probably barely walking. And I just thought that was the neatest thing in the world, these things flying around in the air. And I quickly determined that I got to do that. There's no doubt I've got to, I, I want to fly those airplanes. And then when I saw planes taking off and landing from an aircraft carrier, I said, okay, this has got to be the ultimate. So um, I just spent my early days you know, dreaming about that and doing everything I could within school to become a naval aviator to start with. Did you have anyone in the, in the background of your family, you know, dad, grandpa, anyone that was a, an aviator or were you the first one? Well, believe it or not, um, my dad actually, uh, when he got out of high school uh, in the mid-1940s, he went right into the NAVCAD program in the Navy to start learning how to fly. And he was about two weeks away from getting his wings in Kingsville, Texas, when the war wound down. And they basically said, oh, we're not going to finish your aviation training. But he was commissioned an officer and actually spend, uh, spent about 38 years as a reservist. Uh, most of that was kind of surface warfare, uh, no no aviation after that. But he put himself through college after the war doing some crop dusting. But 
we didn't talk a lot about it because I, I was five or six, you know, and that was in the forties and, uh, I was born in 63. So it, it, uh, yeah, we didn't talk a lot about it, but, uh, my parents really encouraged me to, to reach for my dreams. So yeah, there was a little bit of background, but I, I just remember just seeing and watching aviation growing up and, and I just wanted to be part of it. Did any of your siblings have similar thoughts? Did they get in aviation or are you the odd duck of the family? I am the odd duck. Uh, I've got two older sisters, two older brothers, and one younger brother. And uh, uh, let's see, one's an engineer, one's a sales, a couple CPAs, and uh, another one that owned an optical business. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's funny how the bug strikes, you know? It's like, like you said, you have some sort of aviation background in your family. It was never pushed on you all, but one day you just looked up and saw a plane. And I'm sure your brothers and sisters did the same thing, but they just didn't catch the bug like you did, and you were just drawn to it. Yeah, you, you said it. What, um, so there's this whole thing, like, obviously you want to become a pilot and there's a difference between wanting to become a pilot and making it happen. What did you do to actually make it happen? Well, uh, you know, I, I knew I had to, I had to do well in school. I knew you had to be a well-rounded, um, student and an athlete, you know, so I did, I, I played every sport I could in school because one, I just loved it, enjoyed it. Of course, I had older brothers and, you know, that's how we entertained ourselves back then. Uh, it was playing different sports. And then, yeah, I know you had to do well in school to get there. Uh, I initially thought that I wanted to go to the Naval Academy and um, they didn't really knew who, know who I was. I, I went through the nomination process. Um, yeah, I thought I wanted to go to the Naval Academy and um, yeah, I, I tried for that. Uh, I got uh, went through the nomination process, but the uh, the Naval Academy uh, didn't pick me up uh, my senior year in high school. And uh, the Army was interested in me, West Point. And I said, you know, that's not that's not what I want to do. I want to fly off of aircraft carriers. I, I know the Army has some helicopters. That's I that's not what I was looking for. Um, so I just I stayed at home and started college there. Plus, my friends were all there going to school there. So I just said, Hey, I'm just going to go get an engineering degree thinking that if for some reason I can't fly, I'll be able to maybe design or work on aircraft. And so I started mechanical engineering. Uh, after that first year, the, the uh, recruiter figured out who I was and said, Hey, you know, we'd love to, we can get you in the Academy. Um, but you do know, you got to go through four years of the Academy. And I said, Oh, I said, well, I'm already through completed one year of engineering. I only got three to go. And at that time they had the, uh, aviation officer candidate program still opened up in Pensacola. So I said, look, I'll just get my degree and then go in, uh, after school. So that's what I did. Um, uh, about a year out, I had a delayed entry. I got sworn in a year out. I got a class date, uh, or I started my senior year in college and, uh, went right into aviation officer candidate school about a month after I graduated. And, uh, it just, it was, it, it worked out great for me, but, you know, for those out there, um, I think, uh, you really ought to think about the military career path uh, and in training and, and learning how to fly. And, uh, it's just, it, it's a very rewarding career and you get to fly some really neat aircraft. And I think it's important kind of what you said that you, to be in the Navy, and I've talked to a couple other Navy pilots or Air Force pilots that really wanted to go to the academy and it is very difficult to get into the academy it is a dream for a lot of people 
And in some instances, some kids are working at that since they are like 10 years old. That's their goal to go to the academy. They are working to that to make sure that happens. And other people decide they want to do it their junior year, which is almost too late and you it's harder to get in. But there are other avenues to get into that industry, to get into the, to you don't have to go to the academy. Like you said, you can go to the officer training school or you can kind of, I don't know everything about it, but there are other ways for you to get in. It might be a little bit harder and it might make it a little more difficult, but you do have other avenues to get in if that is your goal, if that is your dream. Absolutely. There's ROTC pre- ROTC programs. Unfortunately, they weren't very good at the time I was going through school and they should have been waiting at the door for me, but they weren't. But, you know, the, the, your career is always going to be, there's always going to be hurdles out there and um, you just got to see the light at the end of the tunnel and know that there's going to be barriers and you got to work around them. Uh, but just remember, what your, what your goal is in the end and keep reaching for it. Absolutely. And talk a little bit about kind of uh, officer school and training. Uh, was it everything you thought it was going to be? Was it as difficult as you thought it was going to be? Or is it just kind of take one day at a time and make it work? Um, it was, it was very intense going into, uh, going into the summer in Pensacola, Florida, uh, coming from a very high altitude, dry climate of Albuquerque, then a humid climate of Pensacola. Uh, I'm glad I was in great shape because it was a trade-off. I was uh, with that humidity. Uh, it was intense uh, physical fitness. Uh, military uh, discipline was taught a lot. But then there was also, I believe we had about 13 uh, classes you had to go through. And all that was done in about three and a half months. And so you, it, it was a huge time management course. I mean, there was a lot of nights where you stayed up most of the night studying for exams the next day. Uh, I love the physical training uh, aspect of it, the obstacle course, the, the runs, the, uh, the long swims in the pool, the you know, jumping off of uh, platforms 65 feet in the, in the air to the water. Uh, you know, it was just, uh, it was like going to practice for a sport, but uh, it, it was a huge time management uh, exercise to get through, to get, uh, to get the commission. And, um, uh, it was very rewarding to me and I'm glad I went through it. I'm glad I was part of it. Uh, there was a lot of it. I'm glad it's over with and I don't have to do anymore. (laughs) I understand (laughs) uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's quite the experience. And, uh, I, you know, I don't, I know they don't have a lot of that now. They do it a little differently in some aspects than the program, the way it used to be, but, uh, uh, very rewarding. And if you like a challenge, uh, again, you gotta, you gotta remember what the, what the goal is down there. There are times when you just feel like, Hey, I, I can't do this. I'm going to give up, but you just got to remember, you got to continue to play the game because, uh, because of the prize at the end. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's easy to lose sight in that prize, right? Like a lot of times you can let kind of su- whatever instances are in, are in your path or obstacles in your, in your path currently, and you can lose sight on the, the end goal. And it's very easy to do that, but it's important to kind of remember what you're there for and what the, what the goal is. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, you know, that was a lot of that training was for things I was going to use at flight school and hadn't even started flight school yet. Yeah. And talk about flight school, kind of talk about what were your goals going into it? What did you want to fly versus what did you get to fly? What was uh, the the beginning goal of like, this is why I want to be in the Navy. Obviously, it was to land on aircraft carrier. Was it a specific airplane you wanted to? Or were you just like, give me whatever, I'll fly it, I'll be happy? Yeah, you know, when I went in, um, Top Gun, the movie had come out in 86. 
And that was the biggest recruiting film for Naval Aviation ever. Um, and it was, uh, but I just, I wanted to fly off aircraft carriers, but I knew there was no guarantee you were going to get anything out of this. You know, there was, there were three pi- or four pipelines at the time. There was helicopters, uh, there was E2C2, there were um, props and jets, and the props being basically uh, P3 sub hunters. And I just want to fly off of aircraft carrier. So uh, the the training was phenomenal. Uh, they, uh, it was. I, I started in the T34 Charlie, uh, turbo turbo prop, uh, single engine, and I just I worked as hard as I can to do as best I could. Uh, I had I had only been in an flown in an airplane a couple times uh, with the with the recruiter. Uh, and I just wanted to do the best I can in hopes of getting to jet someday. So worked hard. There was a lot of simulator training. There was a lot of instrument training after basic familiarization. And uh, the selection process doesn't come until the end of your primary flight training. Uh, I did this at uh, NES Whiting Field, Milton, Florida, just outside of Pensacola. And I, I worked as hard as I can. And by the grace of God, uh, I ended up on the week that I finished primary flight training. So I had about 67 hours in a T-34 Charlie. There was a lot of sim- simulator time. I just en- ended up having the top grades in uh, my squadron. There were three training squadrons uh, at, at uh, Milton Field. And uh, I remember going into the commanding officer's office and he said, okay, um, so you got, you got the, uh, the top grades. So what do you want to fly? And I said, I, I want to go jets. And he goes, well, it just happened to have that. You get jets. And he goes, where do you want to do this at? There were three bases at the time, Kingsville, Texas, Beeville, Texas, and Milton or uh, Meridian, Mississippi. And I said, well, I hear they're, they're, people are, the pilots are moving the fastest through Beeville, Texas. I'd like to go to Beeville, Texas. And he said, I just happen to have that slot available. So I got jets at the quickest place I could go through. Evil, so Texas. It, that sounds like yeah. a, an interesting place. It 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 uh, the base doesn't even exist anymore. It was the smallest naval air station out there in South Texas, about sixty miles north of Corpus Christi. And, yeah, and uh, it's actually uh, like I said, it's closed down now, and it's, there's actually a prison out there. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Yeah. I used to when I flew aerial survey, we had government contracts to take pictures of kind of Texas. I guess you take pictures every square mile type deal. I don't know, but we did a lot of work in and out of Victoria, Texas, and we would see a ton of Navy trainers going in and out of there. Oh yeah, yeah, that was just kind of uh, what was that east northeast of us? Yeah. Seemed every single day there's a King Air, there was some kind of jet, there was whatever you guys had was always flying in and out of there. Yeah, yeah. Back then we were we did uh, T2s as an intermediate, and then we went to the A4 Skyhawk, which was awesome. Uh, now they have the T45, nice little little jet airplane. Yeah, it definitely is. So you got you were a, not necessarily Top Gun. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you were Top Gun, but you had the top choice. You were able to kind of pick and choose where you want to go. Not everyone's that has that ability. So you were, had to work very, very hard to get there. Um, yeah. What yeah. was it like going from training and then going to actually like the base you're going to go fly where you got the shoes and the jet that you wanted? Was it more the same? Was it harder? Was it similar? Yeah, it, it was, it was a great program because uh, after about 
Um, let's see. While I was in uh, uh, Beeville, it, it took me about a year to get my wings from that point. So I'd been in training about a year and a half to the winging, which is a little quicker than you do now. I had almost 300 hours, but I'd also been to the aircraft carrier and had qualified. And when you go to the aircraft carrier, you're on your own out there. They train you to do that. And it's usually the end of, uh, of your flight training. Um, so when I got winged, I remember we had uh, nine, nine other pilots that week got winged. And everybody but myself received their orders for the aircraft that they were going to fly in the fleet at our winging. And it was like, ooh, what does that mean? Uh, a lot of people were saying, well, it's, you might just stay around and be an instructor pilot, which was pretty rare in the Navy. Uh, the Navy liked to bring back experienced fleet pilots to be instructors, which I, I fully support instead of what like the Air Force does or, or what the civilian world does, right? That's how people get their time and their ratings. They become instructor pilots. The Navy likes to bring back experienced pilots and give, you know, be able to share their experiences in your training, which I think is wonderful. But uh, it took about a week, and then I got a call and said, get into the commanding officer's office. He's got your orders. And um, you would always do these dream sheets of, you know, what what airplane you wanted to fly and then what coast you wanted to fly on. It was kind of East Coast and West Coast, and that was it. And I remember I would selected West Coast, and I'm sure I had like uh, at least F-14s up there initially and F-18s and some other things. And commanding officer says, well, you didn't get your first choice. I said, okay, I, I didn't care. And he goes, but here's the deal. You're going to go learn how to fly the A7 Corsair. And you're going to go one of the last squadrons that has A7s. You're going to do a deployment in that A7. And then that squadron is going to turn into A7s to the boneyard. And you're going to transition to brand new F-18s with that squadron. And I just said, I, I looked at my commanding officer and said, twist my arm. I can't wait to go. Let's go. And and it was it was wonderful to get to fly the the great old A seven from the Vietnam era. What a what a neat community that was. Great experience, and then work up in a deployment in that airplane, and turn those literally flew those to the boneyard, and we started picking up brand new F 18s and went through F eighteen training while I was in my fleet squadron and did another deployment in the first Gulf War with a brand new air, airplane. It was it was yeah. It's a crazy three years. It was a lot of work, a lot of, uh, but a lot of fun. That A7 would, air intake yeah. is massive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a uh, uh, great airplane, great community. Still by far the greatest, the, the best community I've ever been a part of. Very Did you tight. enjoy flying one or the other more? I know the A7 is probably a little more older, maybe outdated, and the F-18 was a newer technology, but was there one that you just flew better or one that you enjoyed flying a little bit more? Oh yeah, the, the F-18 being a brand new airplane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but it, you know, I started I started in the attack community. So our our uh, our mission in the A-7 was air to ground, uh, on target, on time. That's you know everything we did was based on that. Uh, loved it. Loved all the air to ground work, the close air support. Um, and then when it transitioned to the F-18, you we got the air to air role with it. Um, so what an incredible all around airplane, but. Yeah, st- nothing still changed. Really, the majority of our mission eventually would be uh, taking out targets. And, you know, air, the air-to-air side of the house is great. And some pilots are like, oh, it's the best in the world. It's the only thing there is. And I always remind the guys, 
hey, we can fight our way in and fight our way out with the with the F-18, but still our mission's going to be to take out a target. And um, and I, 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 to this day, I love that. And uh, the Hornet at the, at the time was the most maneuverable airplane out there. You know, now they have all the vectored thrust, but uh, the Navy still has a lot of Hornets and a lot of the uh, uh, larger uh, EF Hornets out there now. Yeah, they do. And vectored thrust is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> you know, when you see this, yeah. it's like, it just looks like it's cheating. It looks like it's out of the world. <laughs> like it just doesn't make sense to the brain when you see what it's doing, especially if you understand how planes fly, you're like, how? <laughs> like, what, yeah. what kind of magic yeah. are we using right now? It's incredible. Yeah, we're taking the, taking the lift out of this a little bit, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it's really cool. It's, uh, it's awesome to see. I'm reading through the notes a little bit. You had uh, a very successful naval career. Uh, It's saying how you received a Navy Achievement Medal for the development of Occupational Safety and Health Program, and you twice received the Top 11 Award for Best Landing Grades aboard the USS Abraham Lincoln. Uh, They don't give out Best Landing Grades to everyone, so that's that's pretty cool. No, I I, I will tell you um, two things. Uh, As a a naval aviator, uh, you have your flying job. Uh, and especially in a single seat squadron, you're, you're also going to have other jobs, uh, other billets that you need to fill. Uh, as far as uh, you become a division officer, you'll uh, you'll lead uh, a, a work center, whether it's power plants guys, the mechanics, the uh, line division, uh, you name it. The admin side of the house, you rotate around, so you do a lot of other jobs on that building. Uh, your leadership abilities on top of flying uh, so that you know that's something a little different than you know most people out there they learn to fly and that's all they do and they're a pilot uh, but there you had a lot of other duties so that was that was a big part of uh flying yeah that's uh probably one of the downside i would say to a lot of people in the navy they don't or want to go to the navy it's not all about flying you have paperwork you out here too you have a desk job every once in a while it's like they're gonna use your time other than just flying yeah, yeah, and yeah, and especially a day out on the ship, your day was about, it was easily about 16 hours, and you were always, you know, if you weren't flying, you were doing some other aspect of it. If you weren't preparing uh, to go for a flight or doing mission planning, you were working with your troops and uh, trying to help advance their careers and take care of them and, uh, you know, just take care of the squadron and keep uh, developing everybody and making sure they're getting training. Uh, but, you know, and I think that's kind of how, how, how my whole aviation career has been since I got out of the Navy. It was the same thing. It was, I ended up doing a lot of things other than just flying. Although, yeah, flying, flying, let's face it, is, is a great part. It's uh, one of the best parts out there, but also helping others and, and making the organization better is a big part of, of what I do and, and enjoy doing also. Yeah. And from reading this, it sounds like you obviously were a pretty great pilot and a pretty great uh, addition to the Navy. Uh, I have, when I was at playing football with coach Meyer, he would always give a speech on being great and how hard it is to actually be great. How the ones that are great, like Tom Brady or in soccer, Cristiano Ronaldo, LeBron James, how hard you actually have to work. And if you think you're great, you're probably not great because the great people just, just act different. They are different. And the, the way they prepare is different. For, for someone that had as much success as you did, what was the preparation like going into that? Because obviously it wasn't just you go to sleep and don't prepare and just show up in the morning and be great. You had to work for that. So what did you do and kind of what was your process and mentality like of preparing yourself to be as good as you could possibly be? 
Well, I think I had um, I had really good mentors early on, especially in my Navy career. Uh, my first uh, fleet squadron, the commanding officer, he had uh, he'd been around a long time. He had two tours in Vietnam in the A seven. Um, he just uh, you could just see the respect uh, that everybody had of him, and he would bend over backwards to take care of everybody in that squadron from the the youngest airman up to the most senior aviator and um he genuinely cared about everybody but he also believed that uh you know of just being the best pilots we could be in in the studying and the preparation into the, the mission planning and then flying around the ship was a big deal and when a lot of other commanding officers at that time were getting close to that getting their thousand trap on the uh aircraft carrier that was that was a big deal for a, a military career you know they would go out and if they had a chance to get a couple extra traps out there most of the commanding officers would do that not this guy he he would make sure his youngest aviator would get some extra traps in there to become better because he knew the whole squadron as a whole was only as good as its weakest member and and i remember just that really making an impression on me early on so he would make sure that those young officers actually got some extra landings out there to be better. And, uh, and then, and then he, you know, the reputation flying right around the ship, uh, you made your reputation. I remember he always said, you know, or we always said in, in Naval aviation, you know, you could go out and shoot down five, five MIGs, but when you come back and recover at the ship, if you're undisciplined and you look bad and you have a hard time getting aboard, um, you're a crummy pilot. That's your reputation because everybody, those 5,000 people on that ship see that. So flying around the ship was a big deal. Getting aboard the ship was always a big deal. And he instilled that in me. And, you know, let's face it, being young and an A7, I had a lot to learn. And I worked really hard. And then when I transitioned to F-18, uh, that airplane is just a dream to bring aboard the ship. And I worked really hard. I worked. I understood then why the Navy spent so much time on instrument training early on in your career. Because you use, whether it's a daytime visual pattern or the nighttime coming aboard the ship, you use your instrument skills and scan like you wouldn't believe. And you do it, you do it in your weapons deliveries, your air-to-air work. You use all that. But I worked as hard as I can to become as good as I can at landing aboard the ship. And somehow I, I made top scores on a couple uh, couple line periods. And uh, that was a big deal. Very big deal. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, how long were you in the Navy for? What was uh, the actual time? I put about nine years in. Uh, my last three years, I was an instructor pilot in the F-18. So people going, just coming to the fleet knew, or or the senior pilots are rotating back in to be uh, uh, to some of the leadership positions coming through. So I put about nine years in at that point. What was your thought process when those nine years are coming up and you you're, kind of had an exit strategy and you wanted to, to move on? Uh, did you think about airlines? Did you think about just flying? Or did you know you wanted to be more involved on the business side of things and be more involved in the decision-making? You know, it, it, it was a tough choice. I had a great career going. I could have stayed in the cockpit up to the 20 year point. So I was at year nine, I could have probably stayed in the cockpit 10 of those 11 years, which was kind of unheard of. Um, but I'd also be gone a lot. And I already was, I mean, even when I was shore base as an instructor pilot, I averaged 36 weeks on the road 
or you know ship or at uh, uh, doing training and at our training bases in Fallon, Nevada, or other bases. Um, it was tough. I had uh, two young boys at that point, and I just wanted to be part of their life too. Although I I still wanted aviation, um, I just I decided it was time to get out and pursue a career in civilian aviation. And honestly, I didn't know where it was going to take me because the airlines really weren't hiring at that point. Um, so it was, it was a difficult decision. And I said, well, you know, I'll find something and went ahead and decided to get out. What did you, what were your options coming out? You said they weren't hiring very much, but what was kind of, I guess the goal and versus the outcome of where you ended up? You bet. Well, I, I was hoping to get a flying job. And uh, like I said, nobody was really hiring, even the even the, the FedExes and the UPSs and those folks. The airlines had uh, kind of shut down firing for a while. So I was scrambling. Uh, and at the time, McDonnell Douglas, which is you know, now part of Boeing, uh, they were looking for some expertise uh, uh, with uh, F-18 experience. So I went to work for the training systems there and actually started working for the aerospace division. So I was working on uh, actually on the uh, avionics upgrade and uh, with the Navy, with the EF coming online, they were just building it literally in the hangar behind my office. And the Navy wanted to revamp the avionics. So I was kind of doing some of those engineering skills and integration on that. I was doing a lot of training uh, with the Navy and the customers with that background. So I was doing everything up to, but just short of flying. I did a lot of simulator work, a lot of developmental simulator work, or a lot of aircraft development work in the simulator, uh, even marketing, trying to sell the airplane around the world. Uh, it was great, but uh, as my wife said, uh, I, I was miserable because I wasn't flying. <laughs> so I, I spent about two and a half years there, and uh, I, I had actually... Spent about two years there, and I thought I was in line to become one of the uh, test pilots. And uh, they decided to hire somebody else, and I had already had an offer at Cessna Aircraft. And uh, they they offered me a, a job again, and I said, okay, I got to get back in the airplane. And that's that's when I, uh, I got into uh, uh, basically general aviation and with a manufacturer and uh, it, it, you know, it, it turned out to be a great move for me. It's funny how miserable pilots get when they're not flying, right? <laughs> Yo, and yeah. it's usually the wife that recognizes it first. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, come on, go fly. I need like either buy a plane or get a new job because this isn't working. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So when you were for McDonnell Douglas, was it actual McDonnell Douglas or was it when Boeing and McDonnell Douglas already merged? It, it was it was actually McDonnell Douglas until the last month. And, yeah, it uh, and then they were they had talked about a merger earlier, but you know it was really a buyout. Uh, and then that last month, I was already pretty much set up to make uh, make the move to to Cessna when uh, when Boeing took over. Yeah, so that that's a podcast I want to do eventually. One time, is talk about that merger or the buyout of Boeing McDonnell Douglas because there's a lot to go into that. But you are now at Cessna, uh, well, which is now Textron. But when you were there, it was just Cessna, right? It was Hawker and Beechcraft weren't a part of Cessna. It was just strictly Cessna? Correct. It was okay. just Cessna. We, uh, Textron was our parent company. And uh, yeah, I, I started in a demonstration group. And uh, it, was, it was great flying uh, the citations at the time then. Uh, and eventually uh, worked my way into doing what we called a, a delivery pilot, which is 
work with the customer when they come in to accept their brand new airplane. And, Did you enjoy that yeah. the most? It's got to be kind of fun to see the whole process of someone buying a jet and then seeing their jet yes. for the first time. Yeah, it, it was really a neat process working with the customers directly and helping them uh, accept the airplane, help them, you know, even though they get training with it and everything, a lot of them are new to the airplane. So trying to help them through the process of, of really understanding the avionics and how the plane works and, you know, some of the little little things that you need to keep an eye on. Um, so working directly with the customers uh, was was a lot of fun. So talk about your time a little bit about Textron and Cessna. Uh, you obviously worked your way up the the management role, I'm guessing, to be able to get to where you are now. Uh, what was that like? What was uh, Did you have a favorite job? Doing? When you got promoted, you're like, man, I kind of wish I still was a test pilot. Like, I liked doing that. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, uh, just talk well, about the yeah, progression. That, yeah, yeah start, you know, like I said, I, I started working with the... Uh, with the, the delivery or the acceptance, uh, the customers coming in, accepting airplanes. And then uh, we kind of merged with the production flight test group. So I did a lot of work with the production flight test group. And the whole time, I, I was one of those few pilots that had an additional job. And I, I, I took uh, a kind of a role in, in being the safety officer at the time. Uh, I did a lot of work as training officer. And then as we, we merged groups and with production flight test and still did the the delivery side of the house um it was too much uh being training and safety were getting too large so i I took on the safety role for that large group and uh you know that was great and eventually the position uh i was very passionate about safety and worked with everybody and uh it, it was a lot of it was just about awareness and I, I had the the vision of taking on the whole safety role for all the different uh, flight organizations, and we had a lot. We had we had three separate production flight test groups. Uh, you know, eventually when we uh, we bought out uh, Hawker Beechcraft and became Textron Aviation, then we had three separate production flight test groups: one on the west side of Wichita, one on the east side, and one down in Independence, Kansas, with the uh, Pistons. Uh, the 172s and 206s. Um, and then we had an engineering flight test group. We had a demonstration group. And then we had a training group. And we had the defense side with the uh, uh, with the defense group that was with uh, uh, Beechcraft. So uh, there was one that I had already taken over the, the director of uh, flight operations safety and security and standardization before we merged. But after that, it just, you know, we went from about a handful of different flight departments to about nine different flying departments under about five, uh, five groups. And uh, that was, that was a challenge to not only integrate a competitor at the time, but make everybody welcome and understand that uh, what their role is within safety of the organization. And then also, you know, make them, feel at home because, you know, usually when mergers happen, unfortunately, somebody gets let go, right? Uh, yeah, in this case, we weren't going to do that. Uh, we actually, we were a little thin at the time. So we were just trying to make sure everybody understood they were welcome and what their role was. So it, it was really neat to get that, bring that together and build our safety management system in each of those departments and then make sure everybody really understands their role that, uh, you know, just because I have the title of safety 
doesn't mean the safety program runs through me, but it runs through each one of them. And without their input, this doesn't work. Without their input, we're, we don't have a great safety culture. We don't know what, what's going on out in the field unless they, they give us the input. And, um, I, I, I think I, I did a pretty good job of that. Uh, you know, and, and it's never, it's never a job you just do. You get set up and you let it go. It's something you constantly have to be working on. Uh, it's a living program and it changes daily. And, um, I was so, so glad to be part of that. And I was also happy to, you know, pass that on, uh, to the person that took over my job when I came here to the board. Yeah. And that kind of leads me to our next point. It's like you were at Cessna Textron. Uh, for a good amount of time, you know, you could have hung up your career, you could have relaxed, you know, put your feet up and, and watch the planes fly or buy your own plane and fly around the country. But what was it, or I guess the better question is why the NTSB? Was this always kind of an end goal? You know, you're always kind of into safety. It always kind of piqued your interest when you got the Textron. Was this always a goal or was this someone like they reached out like cold call? You'd be like, hey, you want to be a part of the NTSB? <laughs> like, no. Why? Why did you move on? You know, honestly, it, it, when I had all this going on, I thought, oh, you know, this this is a great career. I'm really enjoying it. Great people. Uh, I think we got a pretty good thing going here. I thought I thought I'd be, uh, you know, I could probably finish my career there. Uh, my wife had always handed me. She always said, "There's always something more for you out there. You need to keep looking. There's always there's something more for you." And I'd look at stuff and I said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. She'd bring stuff to my attention. I said, no, nah, that's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. And, you know, I looked around. You never know. You know, occasionally a customer would call, hey, would you be interested in coming, you know, working for us? And one thing or another just laid to the point where, no, I'm, I'm not really interested. Thank you. That's not exactly what I want to do. That's not exactly where I want to live. You, you know how pilots uh, deal with those kind of things. Um, but, uh, you know, this I, I remember going to a safety conference and I went to a lot of safety conferences because I was trying to learn everything I could from the industry and others. And I remember our, our, our chairman who's, who's getting ready to retire here uh, at the end of this month. I remember him in a safety conference and, and we were talking to him after presentation, a, a few of us in the safety industry. And he was like, yeah, I'm getting ready to go to the, to the white house to talk about becoming the chairman you know, and he was talking in his presentation about there being a couple extra uh, board seats that are vacant. And that night we were at a networking dinner and there was a bunch of us who had been in aviation safety for some time and worked on issues in the, the different communities with business aviation and, and charter aviation. And we we're just kind of talking about it and going, you know, oh, some of the guys were like, oh, I can't, you know, I, I'd never, I could never be a board member. And they were, were just kind of going around the circle and they came to me and I said, you know what? I think I could do that job. As a matter of fact, I, I'd be very interested in it. You know, I've been in safety all my life. I've worked very closely with our air safe, air safety investigators. Uh, that was another group that I oversaw when I was at Textron Aviation. Um, I had always worked closely with them before they, uh, uh, before I led that group. Because uh, I was trying to learn everything I could from the investigations they did. I knew what the NTSB did and understood it. And I liked the expansion of not just aviation, but all the other modes. So it, to me, it was kind of a, a culmination or, a, a, you know, a, a peak in, a, in the aviation safety career to, to come to the board. Yeah, it's definitely a, a fascinating asset of the government. 
and kind of, I mean, it can be really sad because a lot of times when you have to go to work, it's when something drastic has happened, uh, something very unfortunate has happened. But to figure out kind of the beginning and the end and the kind of the, the holes throughout the day that have led to that one big event, it's, it's just really interesting to kind of analyze all that and come up with uh, recommendations to help keep this from happening in the future. And there's definitely a need for it. But for someone that doesn't kind of understand, you know, maybe someone is like <laughs> 18, 19, and they don't really know what the NTSB is. Can you give a brief uh, explanation, just like a very generalized explanation of the NTSB, what it's there for and why it's important? Sure. Well, um, we, we basically, we are a re- reactive organization. We go out and statutorily, we have to investigate all aviation accidents. We also do investigations on a lot of other, uh, all the other modes. So when I take other modes, I'm talking about rail, marine, uh, pipeline, hazardous material, and highway accidents. Um, but we don't have to do all those accidents. We do a select group depending on a lot of things. It could be, you know, the number of fatalities, a safety issue, uh, maybe new avi- new issues with uh, technology, things like that. So we basically, we conduct independent accident investigations. So we are independent of the Department of Transportation. Uh, and that was set up back in the late, uh, well, the organization was actually set up back in 67, but actually we were part of DOT until about 74. And, and Congress said, hey, you got to be separate, independent. So we we put a a, uh, a fresh eye on things. We don't have any, we don't have a horse in the game. So we can look at it independently. And then eventually what we will do is we will determine the probable cause of an accident. And then we make recommendations to prevent that accident from happening again. So we advocate for these recommendations. We have no regulatory authority. Everything we, we do is a recommendation. We work with the regulator and industry associations, maybe the operators directly to try to instill change so that accident will happen, won't happen again. Some of the other stuff we do is we actually, uh, we are the appeals court, so to speak, for deciding pilot and mariner certificate appeals. And then one last aspect we do is we do transportation disaster assistance. So, uh, we work with, uh, the victims, families, of uh, transportation accidents and victims themselves who survived and help them get to all the resources they need to put their lives back together. You as a board member, do you actually go to the scene? Are you actually part of the investigation or do you help oversee that? I guess the better question is what does a board member actually do? (laughs) Like what does your job fully encompass? Well, most of what we do is we're technical. We are not the investigator. Um, we have the modal offices in those different modes I mentioned that that have investigators and, and other people that do analysis work on the investigation. We are actually, I, I, I tell people, I'm actually kind of like a judge, uh, one of five that sits on a, a judge panel. And the, the bigger accidents actually come to the board in a board meeting. And we rule on the, the, the findings, the probable cause, the recommendations, and the whole report itself. So the investigative people bring, the, the investigative staff bring all the materials to us. We review it all. We, we recommend changes. And then we actually deliberate at a board meeting on what those, those things are going to be. Um, 
So a lot of what I do is that we, we do a lot of follow-up work on the recommendations we make, whether it's to a regulatory agency like the FAA or it's toward industry or an association or, or an operator. We, we, we kind of decide and, and, and vote on those. And then a lot of what we do is we advocate for those recommendations we've made. And we spend a lot of time uh, going out to the various groups, the industry events, the conferences, uh, advocating for the recommendations we made. We work with uh, uh, the FAA and, and National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, groups like that, trying to get them to act upon our recommendations because we know if those recommendations are implemented, they'll, they'll prevent accidents, they'll reduce injuries, and it ultimately will save lives. Yeah. And let's go through kind of like a um, step-by-step. So let's say you're out golfing. I don't know if you golf, but let's just say you're out golfing and the phone that you never want to ring rings and something mm-hmm. big happens, something drastic happens. Uh, from your point of view, what is going on on your side? Like, wh- what do you do? You go- Obviously, you have to go to work now. So you leave golfing and you're going to work. What is work for you? Uh, starting from the beginning, starting from the phone call, starting to the end point. Sure. Well, you know, I've been in aviation safety and then now just safety and transportation that, uh, you know, they never call you when things go well, right? No, never. It's <laughs> never a good thing call when someone things calls. go bad. Yeah. That's, I've gotten used to that. that that's my job. Um, yeah, we have, we actually have a response operations center here that's manned 24 seven every day of the year. And, uh, they are actually, uh, a lot of the industry has our number and they know that there's certain reportable things when things go bad that they have to report to us. They also monitor the media and the social media out there because it's amazing how quick you can learn things that are going on out there before an official notice. So they monitor that. And if they see something going on, or they get a report, one, they're trying to confirm it initially. And then they're also contacting who's ever on charge out of the modal office. So if it's a, a really bad highway crash, uh, they're talking to who's ever in charge uh, or who's on duty with the highway group, or if it's aviation, who's ever uh, on duty for that. And they're starting to look at, okay, what's going on? Have we confirmed it? What kind of information have we received? Okay, now we need to start thinking about we need to get an investigator there at, at a minimum. Um, if it's a larger, more major accident or crash, you know, then it is there a lot of media attention? Um, is there a significant potential significant issue here that affects safety and future development or of some technologies in there or something like that? We start kind of going through this tier level of, of how important this is. To the point, if if we need to launch what we call a go team, where we need to get a lot of people on the scene quickly in a lot of different uh, oper- types of operation, one being family assistance, you know, human factors, which all of our investigations have that access. But the bigger go team launches, uh, we'll we'll look into this. There's a lot of calls going on, and we have what we call a chairman's call if if that's the case, and that's going to determine if we're also going to need to send. Uh, one is they're going to figure out who all they're going to need to send. And two, are we going to send a board member? Now, uh, if it's something fairly major that has a lot of national, national interest, we're probably going to send a board member. And again, like I said, we're not the investigative side of the house, but we're out there to be the face of the NTSB. So where are you going to see us? You're going to see us at, at the, uh, the press conference, right? 
We're going to make a statement. We're going to ask, uh, answer questions. Uh, we work with investigative staff on that before we go up to the podium. The other part we do is we work with the local authorities, the people that are on the scenes first, right? The, the sheriffs, the police, the fire department, um, the state police, those kind of people that are, are in the, uh, recovery. Yeah. You know, trying to re- recover people and, and, um, take care of the scene. And then the third part is we start, we'll actually work with, uh, the, the families of the victims and start, um, making contact with them and talk to them and help them with the resources to go forward. We also let them know what we're going to release to the media before we go to the media. So there's no surprises and let them answer questions or or ask questions and we'll answer as best we can at that point. So kind of got three things to do as a board member when I go on scene. Is it difficult when you get a call to, I guess when you gather information, how difficult is it to have kind of an unbiased opinion or to remain like keep, I don't want to say ego, not ego, that's not the right word, but to keep kind of a, uh, no judgment going on. Is that difficult to have or is it pretty easy when you're just trying to compile all the facts and kind of take any kind of personal side out of it? Yeah, it it's, you know, sometimes me personally, it's a little, a little bit tough because I, I am a trained uh, aviation safety inspector. Uh, I have uh, accident investigators, so I have some skills there. But I, what I, I've learned over the years in that is that never draw any conclusions. So when we go to a scene, we're not going to do any analysis. We are there to just gather evidence, facts. And most of it is um, perishable evidence is what we're going to be there for. You know, we're going to document the accident scene. We're going to, you know, take lots of pictures. We're going to try to gain as much information from uh, what's at the scene. We're going to start uh, digging into uh, operators' uh, operations manuals, their training manuals, the, uh, the crew's training records, uh, medical records, try to figure out, you know, go back 72 hours in, in the operator's life, the, the crew member's life, and see what's going on, what, uh, you know, those kind of things. We're going to look at survival factors of the safety equipment. Um, just those, you know, air traffic control, we're going to work with those groups. Um, so yeah, at that point, it, it drives me crazy because, you know, you'll, you'll see people on the media and they'll be trying to determine the probable cause, you know, 24 hours after an an accident happened. And, you know, most of the times they get it wrong because there's a lot more to an accident. So yeah, you know, I, I hear things on TV and I, I, in those cases, I'm probably not even watching that at that point. We're just out there trying to figure out what happened, how it happened, why it happened. And we're not even going to start the analysis phase until probably a couple of weeks down the road after we recover everything. We clean up the scene. We send, whether it's the aircraft or whatever equipment, to a salvage yard, which we'll go back and look at again. Engines usually go back you know, to a manufacturer or a lab to be torn down to see if make sure everything was working correctly. So um, it's... Having been in this role for a little over a year now, it's, I understand how it works and you know, you're not going to determine the probable cause right there on the site. And you just got to understand it and you just got to know it's time to go out and look for as much evidence as we can find before we leave the scene. Yeah, absolutely. It's never kind of as, as easy as it seems, right? It's never kind of like the first thought, like you said, sometimes it's 72 hours beforehand a lot of decisions that were made and a lot of things that happened to lead up to this one point. It's very rarely just one thing happened and that's it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of just trying to pick up, you know, videos people have nowadays. It's amazing what you can do with a cell phone. Um, yeah. And then a lot of, you know, just trying to get witness statements and, and talk to family members and try to try to build that 72 hours prior to, to the accident to get a better understanding of what's going on in people's lives who are controlling some of this. Absolutely. So the NTSB releases a most wanted list, and this is usually uh, very important items that uh, either you want your recommendations to be adapted or just new recommendations based on how the industry is changing and, uh, and trending. It's uh, it's very important. And can you talk a little bit about what goes into making this list, um, kind of how it's adopted, and kind of just talk a little bit more about that? You bet. You bet. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, we have we have hundreds, actually, we have thousands of recommendations out there, and so what what comes rises to the level of our most wanted, wanted list. So uh, this list basically exemplifies uh, recommendations we have out there that we see um, would be most beneficial to getting implemented now. And like I said, they'll save probably more lives now if we get this going right away. So a lot of these recommendations that come out on each one of these list items are we we find that are very ripe for action, and if we can get implemented sooner than later, we'll save lives. And so it, we're trying to do more of a quantitative, qualitative process now, as far as you know, what are some of the bigger hitters? Maybe maybe this has a lot of interest in by the FAA, and we have a better chance of getting this implemented now, or Maybe industry is really interested in working on this. So, you know, we have uh, uh, somebody ready to take action on it. So we, we try to we try to put those kind of things on the list that we know can make a huge difference. But knowing that sometimes these changes are going to take years. I mean, we had positive train control on our most wanted list for like 50 years and we finally got it going. But now. We need the next stage of positive train control, you know, because it's very limited what it can do. It's it's like uh, what TCAS did initially, you know. It's changed a lot over the years. Uh, ground proximity warning system, it, you know, it's we just we're just at the start of it. It's it's immature. We need to make the systems mature. And one thing that has been kind of on the most wanted list and has been uh, very important to the NDSB, the FAA, and the community has been kind of the safety management system SMS. When I was in college, I we had an FAA person. I don't remember her name, but she came out and talked to our class about SMS and me being ignorant as I was in college. I thought it was SMS texting. <laughs> so I was like, cool, we'll communicate. but it's not. It is a safety management system. Uh, and this has been pushed in the 121 community. Uh, I believe the final ruling was in 2015 or sometime around there. Uh, but now it's kind of a push for the 135 world. And it's kind of trying to make everything kind of on par, you know, have everyone operate as similar as they possibly can. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, we're really pushing hard, especially with the paying public. Um, they, you know, they they're not at control of anything when they buy a ticket uh, to fly or go on, you know, go on an airline. They're also not in control of, of of the operation when they buy a ticket to go on a aerial tour, whether it's a helicopter or a fixed wing or or maybe uh, a jump to go parachuting uh, or go on an old uh, military aircraft for, you know, a little sightseeing trip. Um, so we're really pushing for any passenger uh, revenue uh, um, carrying operation to have an SMF because we know it's effective. And why it's on the list is we continue 
to investigate accidents out there in these communities that we if might this operator had an SMS, they they might have been able to you know, figure out that they had some risk in an area that they were unaware of and been able to me- uh, mitigate that risk before the accident happened. So that's why we're really pushing SMS out there. And it's, it's good for everybody. I mean, I had, I had part, a part 135 certificate as part of my, uh, where I was at before I came to the board, but it was about one or 2% of the flying we did. The rest of it, we were all on 91 flight operations, but we had an SMS in place and we learned a lot about our operation with our with the SMS we had in place and the reporting system we had in place. And we know this system's around to stay. It's a great way of managing the risk of your operation. And it's going to help you figure out what you don't know about your operation. And guess what? We make this recommendation to the other modes also, to the railroads and the marine industry, because we know SMSs work. Yeah, you're not wrong. They do work. And I guess what the big kind of pushback would be and the big stickler for these is is money. You know, this is not going to be, it's not free to implement this. You got to come up with systems, you got to pay people for it, and you probably have to do some things differently and it might change your operation, which is great for safety. But I'm guessing some people could be detrimental to their actual company and to that 135 certificate. What do you, how do you kind of sell this or how do you make, how do you, tell 135 operators to implement this when it could shut down their program or uh, maybe not as drastic as that, but it could make them uncomfortable and have to change things. What's kind of your outlook on that? You bet. And one of the big things we're pushing for in our recommendation to the FAA is it's got to be scalable. And we've had discussions with the FAA. They've had information out on scalable SMSs since 2010. And it's, you know, start simple. It's, you know, if people that know SMSs, there's, there's uh, four pillars or the foundations of SMS. It, you know, one, just put down on a piece of paper what you, what, what you do, what everybody's roles and responsibilities are. Uh, put down your operation, how your operation works. You know, that way when new people come in, they can look at it and understand, okay, this is my role and responsibility. What are you doing to manage your risk? You know, you, you need to have a great, uh, employee reporting program. It's got to be non-punitive and it's got to be anonymous also. And that way people can report things that are going out on out there that they might be afraid to say something or if they made a mistake, an honest mistake, you want people to know that because chances are if somebody made that mistake or ran into a hazard out there, the rest of the operation is vulnerable to it also. So as long as you make them aware of it and, and then the company takes it on, and does something about it and makes, you know, makes everybody aware of it and fixes, tries to fix the problem. Uh, again, safety assurance is how do you know what, what you don't know? A good reporting program or a flight data monitoring program will evaluate how good your policies and procedures are and, or, your oper- or your SOPs. And you, know, you might find areas out there that you thought, hey, this, we thought we were doing pretty good here, but we need to you know, maybe we need to tweak this process a little bit, or maybe we need to do a little more training in this area because we're still having issues with it. Uh, and then all of that, as long as you're, you've engaged every employee and let them know that they're the safety officer out there, not the guy with the title, but if, with their input, we're going to become a safer company and or a safer operation. And as long as you're letting us know what's going on and we're trying to fix those as we go along, 
you know, the, the safety culture is going to build and it also promotes safety. So it, it all works together yeah. know, as long as you take care of each pillar. And I'm guessing you get, you might get some pushback from the people. It's like, Hey, we've been operating for 45 years, 50 years. We haven't had an issue. We have a clean sheet, uh, any kind of issue we have. And we, we think, or they believe that they have kind of a good safety culture and putting this in place, like we said before, could increase financial burden and it could have an effect on their overall bottom line. And I'm guessing you'll get a lot of pushback from that. Just kind of like, you know, aviation, it's slow to adapt. It's slow to, to make changes. Mm-hmm. Even if those changes are in the greater good and for the better of everyone. Yeah. And believe it or not, it, it, it's not, it won't cost you that much money. It, it really won't. It, it doesn't have to be complicated. Um, you know, and and that's part of our discussions with the FAA, especially for smaller operators. Is you know, it doesn't have to be uh, restrictive cost wise, and you know, it, it can be simple but effective. And there's a lot of help out there. There's a lot of organizations that are trying to work uh, to to help out to help people do you know ASAP programs like the airlines have for reporting, uh, do flight data monitoring. You know, we're, we're asking for installing crash-resistant recorders and establishing flight data monitoring programs. Well, I know crash-resistant recorders are very expensive, uh, especially for, you know, smaller aircraft. They can be a weight penalty. Um, but, you know, I, I just, I'd ask operators to at least start a flight data monitoring program. There's a lot of other ways of doing this. There's a lot of equipment out there that is very cost-effective. It won't cost much. You got to walk before you run. So let's start doing that and you can work towards that end goal. Yeah. And I know we kind of have an hour timeline. I just have a couple more questions for you. And it's kind of focus on this. It was, uh, you know, whenever you make these recommendations, whenever you talk to a flight department, I'm guessing it's really good to show kind of a, a why. So show an exact evidence of like what could have, how this could have saved someone before. Do you have like a specific accident that you, you go to, or maybe a couple accidents or, or what's kind of your example when you kind of convince people or to tell them why this is important? Um, well, gosh, I've got so many, there's so many crashes out there that we've had over the years. Um, I, I don't know if anybody's aware of the, uh, Learjet Teterboro accident on approach going in there, smaller, you know, um, let, let's face it, that that operation had no idea what was going on out on the line. And an SMS and a flight data monitoring program might have given them some heads up that, hey, we there's a lot of things we need to cover that we're not covering. There's a lot of things we don't understand how the operation's really working out there. Um, a lot of that was negative. Um, we've seen accidents where uh, with some of the... Uh, helicopter avi- uh, aeromedical aviation community that, you know, it's, uh, we got to go pick up this patient at all costs. And, you know, there might've been pushback by some of the pilots and it was like, Hey, you know, you either, you go get this done or you're out of a job. Um, personally, I'd say I, I, I'm done flying here. I don't want to work for an operator like this, but you know, it's a livelihood too. And, and that cult, that safety culture and everybody has a safety culture where they work. It's a matter, is it positive or negative? And some of these we've seen in the accidents we've been to have been absolutely toxic. I, I, I wouldn't want to work there. I don't think any other aviator would want to work there. So we know SMSs will, will you know, work, work on making a positive safety culture and will help basically highlight risk of the operation that you might not be aware of. 
Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, it's a very, building your time can be a very difficult time for a pilot and probably one of the most dangerous times if you're not going the standard, even flight instructing. So even if you are going the standard way, even if you're not going military route, but getting your first couple jobs, there's a lot of pressure on you to perform. There's a lot of pressure on you to get the job done. Then it's not necessarily them telling you that they're going to fire you if you don't do this, but there's definitely the underlying kind of uh, thought process of, hey, we'll get someone else to do this, or the last person did this and it ended just fine, or we've always done it this way, but you know personally it's not safe. And I, I do see where that could definitely come in. And it, it is a dangerous time for a lot of pilots when they're building their time just because they might wind up in the wrong operator and they are very, very um, just a little shady, I guess is the right way to say. They're, they're, they do things to, to make money and money is definitely their, their top priority. And they could cut costs on safety or ask you to fly in dangerous conditions. And I could definitely see where a data recorder or uh, an SMS system would be very beneficial. Absolutely. But yeah, it would be hard to convince those, those people to uh, probably do that because they know that they run their operation that way. <laughs> You bet. You know, and I've had, I've had, uh, you know, I've mentored other pilots out there in the community and I've had people ask me and I said, you know, um, it, it's, it's just not worth it. You know, yeah, it, it'll be a tough time if you, if you quit an operator like that, but you know, eventually it, it may get you. And is, is your life worth that or the lives of others? I, I don't think you want the NTSB showing up and, and going through all your dirty laundry out there. Um, it, it's, it's not pretty. Uh, you know, so if we, whatever you can do to mitigate that to where that accident doesn't happen, and it may just mean, hey, I don't work, I'm not going to work here anymore, it, and I'll be out of a job for a while, but I'm going to go look somewhere else. And that's a tough thing, too, because you have in the mind that this person that employs you is kind of the boss, and he has all these friends, and he'll tell you that, or she, you know, he or she tell you that you can't get a job anywhere else because I won't recommend you, but you're right, it is not worth it. Uh, the best thing you can do sometimes is to walk away from a job. And uh, a lot of times you'll be better off for it. Absolutely. So bottom line with everything and kind of everything we've talked about today, uh, obviously SMS is very important. Safety management system to the NTSB, to the future of aviation. What is kind of one thing that someone can take away today about SMS or a success story or just anything about the safety of aviation that you could, you would want people to take away from today? I think one of the most important things is to understand uh, in an SMS that it SMS is not about the safety officer or the person that has the title of that, but it's it's about the individuals. Everybody has to be engaged in the organization, and I mean everybody, everybody who you know cleans the aircraft, uh, positions aircraft, fuels the aircraft, uh, flight attendants, flight crews, uh, uh, schedulers, dispatcher, you name it. It's Everybody is the safety officer out there. And if you see something that's not right or there's a hazard out there, report it. Please report it because guess what? It's a good chance the management leadership's not aware of it. And if, if, if something tripped you up or there's a hazard out there and you caught it, the chances are it's going to get somebody else. So um, report, report what you have and, uh, and help the program out and make it a safer, safer operation. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> sometimes that can be kind of intimidating. You think you might get blowback, but yeah, I mean, it's a sticky situation to be in. And a lot of times you just got to look at the greater good and see what's, what's better for the company, what's better for me and what's better for the overall safety of aviation. If you could save your life or a lot of times these safety recommendations can come and save other people's lives. So it could be a, a friend of a pilot or it could be your other coworker or people on the ground that are affected by a bad decision or a poor safety record. Absolutely. I'll tell you, uh, as a safety professional, um, getting good reports in and more reports always helped us figure out the trends that were going on in the operation. And I can't tell you how many times. One of the important parts is I've got to share that information as a safety professional. I got to let everybody know, de-identify the data, right? It's not about who this happened to or who reported. It's what happened and why it happened and how we're going to fix it. And getting that information out there, but I can't tell you how many people would come back to me and say, "Hey, you know that thing you talked about on the on, on the report? You know, it's happened out there. You know, that happened to me last month too. Maybe I should have reported it too. Yeah, maybe you should have because <laughs> it's a bigger problem than we thought it was. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, hey, that happened to me too. It's like, well, yeah. it's been nice to know. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. So for someone like you that's had a very successful career in aviation, we can kind of end on this question. For someone sure. that has done everything that they wanted to do, you know, you have done very cool things and someone listening today be like, I want to be a part of the NTSB or I want to work for, for Textron or I want to be an F-18 pilot fly off carriers or F-35, whatever, 22, whatever, insert whatever plane you want. What are kind of like three truths or three tips you would give someone to have a successful career, to stay motivated and to work hard and to make their dreams become a reality? Oh, that, that's a good question. Um, I think the first one is never stop learning. Um, you know, when I got out of college, I was like, all right, I got my degree. I'm going to go learn how to fly. I, you know, I'm done with my education. Ha, I was wrong. You know, I just, I'm just starting my education and I learn one or two new things a day, especially here at the NTSB, but don't, you know, don't put the books down. Try to learn more about the aircraft you're in or a procedure or a process or a better understanding out there. So never stop learning is the first one. Um, the second one is go with your gut. Um, I learned that, you know, if something doesn't feel right, smell right, or look right, and especially during my production flight testing days when you know, I had a brand new aircraft that had never flown yet, Something just didn't seem right. It probably wasn't right and, and deserved a little more investigation to figure out, oh, maybe something wasn't connected correctly or uh, something's not electrically working right. So maybe maybe today we don't go flying. That's, that's not a bad thing. And uh, the third thing is, uh, you know, in not just your career, but in life, you're going to run into naysayers. You're going to run into barriers and uh closed doors and don't don't let those let those stop you from your end goal you know keep your eye on the prize at the end and you'll figure out ways to work around it and and get to the end uh because um you know i love aviation it, it it got into my blood early on and you can't get it out so those three things hopefully will help you in, in not just your career, but in life. Yeah, I agree. Put your head down and work. If you want to achieve something, the only person that's going to make that happen is yourself. You create your own luck and you put yourself in the position to get what you want. So uh, all the work you put in got you the opportunity to be on the NTSB and it's no different than anyone else with their other dreams. You put in the work, someone's going to notice it and you, who knows what your future might be. Absolutely. You nailed it. 
Well, perfect. Well, Mike Graham, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Those are all the questions I have for you. Uh, I, I really enjoyed talking with you and I could see talking with you more. So if you ever have any free time, which I'm sure you don't have too much free time, but uh, we can make another one work and we can just continue chatting. Uh, it's really interesting to hear different facets of the career of aviation and especially NTSB because they play a very important role in keeping the safety and recommendations for aviation for the future and for the past. So um, uh, I hope you don't work too much because that usually means something bad happened, but uh, thank you for your work and we really, really appreciate it. Hey, you bet. Thank you for having me on. I, yeah, I'd love, I love to talk more and I just, you know, I challenge everybody to, you know, go out there and look at our website and our YouTube sites and, and, uh, see the work we do and what's going on in the in the transportation world absolutely well mike graham thank you so much for coming on and i appreciate it thank you have a great day you too and that is a wrap of episode 177 of the pilot the pilot podcast shout out to the ntsb for reaching out and making this happen this was a dream episode that i've always wanted to do from back in the day when i started this so i really hope that there'll be more of these in the future if you enjoyed these episodes if you enjoyed the episode with the ntsb let me know let them know reach out to them and tell them you want to hear more stuff like this i think it's really cool when when the government when a big company whoever just comes on and wants to just talk and be open and be honest and kind of share what they do so let's make more of these happen. But Navy Nation, I hope you guys are having a great day. I hope you guys had an amazing July 4th. Happy Independence Day to everyone. And I hope everyone's flying and staying safe. So, so Navy Nation, as always, happy flying. <laughs>